Luke chapter 7. I'm going to read and go from verse 11 through verse 17 this morning. It's never been a a secret here that uh, my favorite of the gospel writers is John. Uh, I deeply enjoy reading John. Um, But as we've gone through Luke, I I am becoming very, very fond of Luke, I must say, Uh, and enjoying the way that he has laid out his gospel and presented Jesus Christ to us in this this way. He's his thought is so well um, laid out and enhanced as he, he shares with us the, the progress of Jesus' life and what he means through his purpose. As we've gone through, we looked last week as we've uh, continued our way through and we looked at the passage just before this beginning of chapter 7 about a centurion, a, uh, a Roman centurion whose servant was ill and uh, close to to dying, and Jesus healed that servant for him. We noted as we looked at that last week and saw that the the passage really didn't need a lot of explanation. It was one of those ones that just needs us to get out of the way and to take in what Jesus is, is doing and showing there. And as we come to our passage this morning, it's the same. It is a deeply emotional passage this one it is one which naturally draws us in to the text without having to be drawn in or pulled in as we watch Jesus as we watch this event unfold it is one which just naturally grabs our attention and our heart as we go through it is intensely personal and I have a feeling that as we read through this and we think through these things that I don't think that there will be a person here amongst us that will not, in at least one way or another, be able to relate to what goes on here and the experience that uh, Jesus walks into and shares in. It's a moment of extremes. I'm going to read it in just a moment, but it's, it's a moment of extremes here as we move from the unfathomable depths of grief and then are drawn to the soaring heights of joy. It is quite a remarkable passage of Scripture. So let's read this passage as we begin in Luke chapter 7 and verse 11. It says, Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain. And many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was car- being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he, who was dead, sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother, Then fear came upon them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. Let's have a word of prayer as we look to God's word. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the beauty of this passage and all that it shows us and can teach us of who you are and what you have come to do. Encourage us this morning as we spend time in it. 
that it might lift our hearts and our desires for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look here and as we've just read, you can see this is a a message. This is a, a, a story, an event which is about resurrection hope. It's about resurrection hope, and I've been in a bit, as you've noticed from a couple of weeks ago, I've been in a bit of an acrostic mood. So my outline is going to be an acrostic of the word arise. This is what Jesus tells this young man to arise, and so as we move through, I've really given each verse a title or a, a sentence by which we'll move through to think through the beauty of what takes place here And the first thing that we see as we move through and as we think about what has done, in verse 11, we find a large audience. Now, it happened the day after that. He went into a city called Nain. And many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. We find here at the beginning that there is a large audience, a large audience that is following Jesus, that follows Jesus. And amongst this crowd, it's a mixed crowd. There are some who believe. This, of course, is not long after the incident with the centurion and his servant. There is, of course, much following and before that which Jesus has done, the Sermon on the Mount, which has gathered so many people there to listen and to hear, and the miracles he's done with thousands of people to see and listen, and the walking on the water and the calming of the seas, and all these are in recent memory and recent uh, sight of what has happened in the lives of the people around him as he spent time in Capernaum. So many that are following him are following Jesus and they they believe Jesus. It says they're, they're disciples. That means they're following Jesus because they have a desire to learn and to grow. That's why they're there. They're following him to find out what more he has to say, to to come to a, a better understanding of who Jesus is and who the Father is, to find him more perfectly. They have a desire to know God's will and what God intends to do and how he will save his people and what that will mean for them. They've followed Jesus for the same reasons that we follow Jesus today. To find him more deeply, to understand him more perfectly, to know what he wants for our lives and what he will do for eternity. But not only are they those who are following him that believe, but we're also told that there is a large crowd, a mixed multitude of people differentiated, of course, from the disciples, because in this large crowd, they're not all believers. You're like any large crowd or any crowd of any size, really. There is a range, a broad range of ideas and beliefs and uh, ideologies about who Jesus is or what he's there to do. It's possible that amongst this crowd of people, as was normal as Jesus traveled around, that there were religious leaders in the mix here who were following Jesus around and they were following him and watching and listening and they were watching and listening with a sceptical mind, thinking about how they could trick him. They weren't wanting to find anything or to learn anything from Jesus, but to find out what they could to find fault with him. Some, of course, there who aren't convinced who Jesus is, are still not sure about what this man is and others really don't care who he is. They just want to see another trick. And that was a fairly significant chunk of the people through Israel, was they just wanted to see Jesus do or say something unusual, different, that they had not seen before. Some may even be close to believing, and that's why they're there. 
They're intrigued by what he has to say. But what is true of this crowd and the mix of this crowd is this crowd is full of people who are both in wonder and expectation. They're following Jesus, expecting to hear him say something they need to hear or want to hear, or to see him do something which they have not seen before. And this, again, is no different than people today. There are many reasons why people hang around Jesus and the people of Jesus, wanting to see or hear something, wanting to find something that might help them in the right direction. But here, the people who are following Jesus though they don't yet know it, are following Jesus to a divine appointment. They are following Jesus to a divine, a divine appointment in, shall we say, an interesting place. They travel with Jesus to this little town, we're told, called Nain. It is within a day's walk from Capernaum. It's just a little bit to the southeast of Nazareth. So it's very near where Jesus grew up. Uh, and where his family was, very close to that area. It's a place that Jesus frequented often and throughout all that, that region. But I say it's about a day's journey from where they were in Capernaum or thereabouts. The city, this just by way of, of interest, the city sits on the north side of a hill. And on the south side of the same hill, so if you just go around the other side or go over, on the other side of this very same hill is another town which found infamy or fame in the Old Testament. This town is a a town called Shunem. Perhaps if you know much of the Old Testament, the town of Shunem comes to your mind for a reason because it was in this town, and you can read about it in 2 Kings chapter 4. It was in this town that the prophet Elisha raised a young man from the dead. A young man who, uh, a family, a wife and her husband had had made a house, a a room for Elisha to stay as he passed through the area. And they had, over the many times that Elisha had been in and out through the area, invited him in and given him food and lodging. Elisha was so moved by their generosity to him that he asked what he could do for them. They didn't really want anything, and so because they hadn't had children and couldn't have children, he promised them and interceded for them for a child, which God gave them. But in time, that child died. The woman sent for Elisha. Elisha quickly comes and, through the power of God, raises this young man from the dead. Here we have it. It's an interesting place in this area. The news and the idea of what had happened is surely around. But Jesus comes to this town not because there is something that happened on the other side of the hill in history, but because he has a reason to be in this town. He is here for a great purpose. You know, if we know anything about the itinerary of Jesus, if we know anything about the way Jesus moved through the nation of Israel and the things that he did, the towns he went to, the places he went, we know this. That although sometimes it seems haphazard, he never went anywhere haphazardly. There was always a reason, there was always a purpose to be where he was. He was always moving on purpose. The great purpose, of course, he tells us, is that he is moving with purpose toward the cross. And so each and every step he makes, and each and every town he visits, and person he sees along the way, is a deliberate and intentional step toward the cross 
toward what he is about to do, what he had come to do. And his trip here to Nain, his trip here to Nain is of no difference. He comes here on purpose. There is a reason he's here. I think there's, we can probably class it into three different reasons, if you will. There's a personal reason. And that he is here, and he comes to this town to meet this woman. He is there for her. This woman is in dire need of help. And Jesus is there to meet her. But there is also a public reason which will come from this. The crowd, seeing what Jesus does here, and getting a glimpse, a little extra glimpse again of who he is, the crowd is now going to have to make a decision about who he is. This is a public proclamation of what he is about and what he is here to do. I mean, this type of miracle, if you stand there and you see this type of miracle, this isn't something that you can just pretend didn't happen. You can't unsee that kind of miracle and think, well, you know, Jesus didn't really do that. You stood there and you watched it happen and there's witnesses for it. They are being confronted with who Jesus is and having to believe or not believe who he is. So there's a personal reason, there's a public reason he's here, and there's a prophetic reason he is here. The prophetic reason he is here is it shows his power over death. He does this miracle and he brings this young man back to life. He is showing these people that he is not just talk. That he is not just here to talk about God, but that he is God and that he has power over death. To the greater extent, the direction to which he is headed and which he is going is to show that he will crush sin and death. That he will take all of its power and bring life. So in this story, we see a large crowd or a large audience And this large audience is confronted, as they come here, to the ravages of sin. The ravages of sin, which are relentless. They are relentless. Here's the truth, a truth which I think we all understand. Life is hard. Life is hard. As Jesus and the large crowd make their way up the hill to this town... Coming down the hill to go outside to the burial place, these two large groups meet. The group coming down the hill is hurrying as their practice was, and they're quickly taking him out, and there's wailing, and there's all this going on because they're about to to bury a beloved man. But the funeral for this young man, which is tragic, We've all been, I think most of us here, I think we've all been to the funerals of young men who've had great potential, who we have have loved. We've all been to those things, and there's great pain in those things. But here, the pain in this funeral is very, very deep. It's much greater, the pain here in this funeral, than just a young man who has died. There is more. There is more. You see, this young man who has died is the only son this woman has. The only son she has. And to drive us deeper into her pain, not only is this the only son she has that has died, she is a widow. Her husband has died. This is deep 
pain. This, this woman which we meet here finds herself in a place where life is really very hard. The pain is intensely deep. And because now her husband has died and her only son has died, she finds herself in a very, very difficult position. She has no way, in many ways, to fend for herself, to provide for herself. She is now reliant on other people, the goodness of others. The depth of her pain on this day is massive. You know, when God told Adam and Eve that if they ate of the fruit of the tree, good and evil, which he'd put in there and told them not to eat of, he said that they would surely die. And when he told them that, he was telling them death would come to everything. To everything. When they did, they soon found out he was right. Not only would death come to them, that they would indeed die, but death would affect every single part of their life. The toil became harder. The life became harder. Relationships became harder. The next generation was born through pain into sin. Everything about life became difficult. The result is life is hard, not easy and not fair, but difficult. Job knew it well. Job, perhaps the earliest book written in Scripture, says, Man who is born of woman is of few days, and those few days, he says, are full of trouble. This life is often harder on some than others. As we meet this woman, we can look at her and we say, she's had a hard lot in life. Life has been harder on her than, than many, many others. Because the truth of the matter is, is that sin pursues us to death. Sin pursues us to death. As we watch this woman walk her son to the grave, we see the consuming nature of sin. We see the ultimate end of sin. It hounds us. It troubles us. It beats us until it finally takes us in death. This is the great tragedy. Sin is cruel. Sin is heartless. And sin is universal. Romans chapter 5 tells us, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. The ravages of sin are relentless and thieving. They're thieving. Sorry, I should have put those up for you. But Sin, sin robs us of joy. See, buried in her grief, she doesn't even seem to notice those passing up. The story tells us that it's Jesus who moves. She doesn't come to Jesus. Yesterday, as I was dra- driving in the morning, I drove down past the, the park near our house to go to the shop. As I came up to the park, I, I had to stop because there was a, a procession of funeral cars in front of me. And uh, they were there and they were stopped in the road and the the people from the the funeral were getting in the car. They had clearly been to the park for some part of their funeral uh, as they they sat there. Of course, as the cars were there in the road and the other cars came behind, we stopped and we, we waited and we gave them space. As they did that, they weren't in a rush. 
They were getting into their cars and they were doing what they needed to do and then they slowly drove away as the funeral director walked in front of the car past the, the park. You know, none of us were bothered by that. None of us got upset uh, at what happened there. And you know what? The people who were there at the funeral, they weren't paying attention to us. They weren't focused on you know, what cars we had or, or how many cars had been backed up. They didn't even look our way. They were focused somewhere else. Their focus was on their family, their friends, and their grief. You know, no matter who you are, death brings sorrow. Even believers. It's final. It's relentless. It's battering. And as it continues to batter our life, it lands its final blow in death. Not only does sin rob us of joy, it robs us of hope. Robs us of hope. Here we see a woman. A woman who has lost hope. And she is now in a desperate situation. Her husband is gone. And now her son is gone. This means we now see a woman whose future is bleak. There is not much for her ahead. What will become of her? How will she survive? Sin and death have taken what she loves and they have left her empty, hurting and alone. She is in a desperate place. And Jesus has brought, he's brought us to this woman because she illustrates for us the ultimate life in sin-filled world. She is an illustration of what sin does in this world. In its perhaps most full sense. In that we live a life in this world. And we get beaten. And we find loss and heartache and sorrow. And have all the things which, which God desires from us to be stolen away and taken away. To the point where we have no hope in what is before us. There is no hope of the future. Her very future is bleak. There's a popular psychologist at the moment who is making the rounds and talking about things. And one of the things that he is famous for saying and is noted often of saying is that life is a fatal disease. And he is right. Life is a fatal disease. I would perhaps uh, qualify that a little bit more to say this life is a fatal disease. So we have here a large audience that is confronted by the ravages of sin and see the instinctive tenderness of Jesus. Verse 13 comes and it says, When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. In the instinctive tenderness of Jesus, we see that his tenderness is deep. His compassion is perfect and pure. These two groups of strangers approach each other. As the one group from Nain comes down the hill, the other group from Capernaum comes up the hill. They are strangers for the most part. They don't know each other. Jesus, it would seem, hasn't met this woman and this woman doesn't know who Jesus is. They are strangers, but not for long. 
Jesus sees the state of this woman and he is moved. Tells us he has compassion on her. Are those not beautiful words? When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. What a beautiful statement of the nature of Jesus. The perfect humanity of Jesus is touched by our suffering. Jesus' compassion isn't marred by sin. It's not distracted, even in part, by his own trouble and his own suffering. We have compassion and we show compassion, but even in our deepest compassion, it's marred by sin. It's marred by our selfishness, but not Jesus. In his perfect humanity, his compassion is pure. His compassion is complete, deeply personal, and profound. This life, true, is a terminal disease, but our God is not ignorant and apathetic to that. He isn't uh, oblivious to that. See, suffering does exist in this world, and it exists in this world because of sin. And Jesus came not just to ease the suffering. He came to destroy what causes the suffering. Sin. Our God isn't heartless. He isn't cold. And he isn't distant. He cares that the greatest part of his creation groans in pain. He cares about those. He is sorrowed by the death that comes by sin. His compassions, we're told in the Old Testament, never fail. They are new every morning. See, Jesus didn't pass this funeral procession with a frown of acknowledgement and a bow of the head and keep going. A compassion which acknowledges the sorrow and the hurt but continues on with life. The tragedy of sin and death he saw as they passed him struck deep into his heart. And so we see not only is his tenderness perfect and pure, but it is swift to move. You know, uh, in, in one of my other jobs, I often drove past Caracatta. In fact, almost every day I would drive past Caracatta, and I would see the people waiting there for the funerals. Every time I passed by, and I saw the people there, and the, the hearses all waiting for the funerals, it, it, it caused my mind to pause and to reflect and to think on those people with compassion as I pass by. But then I swiftly move on with my life. They remain there at the, the cemetery and I pass on to continue my work. Why? Why? I'm touched by the sorrow, but I'm powerless to change it. I can't do anything about it. Jesus moves swiftly here and with purpose to change things because he can. He can change this whole entire event. His compassion, unlike mine, isn't powerless. Jesus didn't come to earth just so we would know he felt bad for us. He came to earth to make it better. He stops right there. 
as these two come together, he stops right there to make sure that this woman knows he loves her. God hasn't just told us he cares. He sent Jesus to earth to meet us in our misery, to find us in the depths of our sin. Notice also that his compassion is given freely. See, as the two groups come together, text tells us that Jesus went to her. She does not see Jesus and cry out to Jesus, Jesus, heal my son, raise my son, Jesus, do something. Jesus is gripped by compassion, and his compassion moves him to go to her and to give her what she needs freely. He doesn't need to be convinced to love them. His compassion doesn't have to be manipulated. Jesus moves first and he gives freely. She wasn't looking for him. She didn't even recognize him. She, at that moment, was consumed by grief. Probably didn't even pay attention to who it was that was passing by or even how many there were. So in this life, we weren't looking for Jesus. Don't even recognize him. We're consumed in our lives of grief and sin. So he came to us freely offering salvation. So Jesus, in his instinctive tenderness, which is deep, we find is also full of hope. As he comes to this woman and he meets her. He assures her of his sympathy. You know, many picture Jesus as the you're the, the stoic one. He's always standing tall and, and straight with a stern look on his face. And when he speaks, he speaks with, with authority and, and eloquence in all times. Compassion doesn't move your heart and not your face. Jesus comes there and he doesn't stand in front of this woman tall, And when he speaks to her, he's not speaking to the crowd. It says he speaks to her. So he's not standing there saying, do not weep. He says to this woman, perhaps he holds her hands. Maybe he wipes the tears from her face. He says, do not weep. He's speaking to her heart. He has compassion. As he stops this profession, this procession, his face shows his sympathy. His actions towards her and his words towards her show that he cares. Isaiah 53 tells us that would be exactly how he is, that he is a man of sorrows and knows our griefs. He has borne our sorrows and carried our griefs. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that he he knows the depth of our troubles and we can come to him boldly because he understands them. So he assures her of his sympathy and he encourages her with hope. Now the words he speaks sound confusing. Now, who goes to a funeral? We've all been to funerals. Who goes to a funeral? And as you you pass out and you you offer your condolences perhaps to those who have lost, who goes to a funeral and sees the the bereaved there and says, don't weep. Right? That's confusing. It's ridiculous, isn't it, to think that we would go to a funeral and tell someone, don't cry. 
Because that's what we expect at a funeral. That's what we would do. It's what we, we ought to do. As we, But Jesus here interrupts this funeral procession and he says the oddest thing to this woman. Don't cry. Now who says that to someone in the middle of their grief? To speak these words, to say words in the middle of a funeral here to a woman in deep grief, say, do not weep. You need to have a reason. If you don't have a reason to say these words, that's just cold-hearted. That's hard. See, with those words, Jesus has to do something now. You can't say that. You can't say to somebody, give them hope through the words, do not cry, and then leave. Those words mean something must be done. You can't leave it like that. This event in a small town for an unknown woman is showing us the great heart of God. His presence on earth brought hope. That's what those words are meant to do. When Jesus says to her, do not weep. They are words which are meant to communicate to this woman hope. In the deepest, darkest depths of her tragedy, in a time when she is looking and sees no hope, Jesus is offering a few words which give her hope. His presence on earth brought hope. Being here. The fact that Jesus came from heaven to earth, being here, he had to do something. He couldn't just come to earth and talk about how sad he was about our sin state and tell us how much God loves us and and tell us that, that God was going to do something and then leave and not do anything. The very presence of Jesus on this work was God, on earth is God giving us hope. And so, in this uh, great show of God's power, we have a large audience which is confronted by the ravages of sin, sees the instinctive tenderness of Jesus and are amazed by his stunning miracle. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. He performs here a stunning miracle which gives life. A miracle which gives life. His words aren't empty. Again, Jesus isn't distant. He touches the open coffin. So the, the coffin there, it's a, a, a bier or it's a, you know, one where it was open on the top. They would take him and they would bury them as they, they needed to. The coffin is open and he comes by and he doesn't just stand aside. You know, before we saw with the centurion servant, the, the, the centurion believed that Jesus didn't even need to be there to heal his servant. And the same is true in this instance. Jesus didn't need to be there. He didn't need to to touch that coffin. He didn't need to be involved to do what he needed to do. But he moves in and he puts his hand on that coffin. He comes near and he talks to that young man who lies there. The God who spoke the universe into existence speaks life into this young man. His words give life. With those few words, this young man is raised to life. Not just a little life. Not just twitches and fits which could be confused for life. This young man sits up and he speaks. And he interacts and he talks. 
Jesus isn't toying with us. He is no charlatan. He came to offer life, salvation from the tyranny of sin and death. And here, with just a few simple words, in a moment of great compassion, he proved he had power over death. He proved it. And in those moments, not only does he give life, but having given life, it fills with joy. See, in an instant, we go from a woman who has no hope for her future, is in the deepest pits of despair and sadness, and in the next minute, great joy, hope, faith. Things have changed in a moment because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. First Corinthians tells us, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. Here, Jesus breaks the power of sin in a small and temporary way. Okay, this young man, he's going to die again. But here, Jesus shows us in a small and temporary way that he has the power over death. Soon, very soon, he would show us that he has the absolute power over death. Everything that sin and death has, everything of sin and death that beats us down in this life, that tortures us, that pursues us until it finally consumes us in death, would be placed on the shoulders of Jesus, and Jesus would take every single bit of it to the grave with him. And he would leave it there. And he would rise up from that grave, victor. So, 1 Corinthians 15 continues, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the last thing this morning is this. A large audience is confronted by the ravages of sin and sees the instinctive tenderness of Jesus, are amazed by his stunning miracle, and exalt God. Verse 16, Then fear came upon all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us. God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. They exalt God. They are amazed by what they've seen. It says they stand in fear, in, in awe, and in, in perhaps terror, some of them, as they see what happens. How can power like this be exercised so freely and so openly? How do you react to something like this? Imagine if you were standing there that day in one of these crowds, and you see what Jesus does. Now, we don't know how many people Jesus raised from the dead. John tells us that the miracles Jesus performed were so many, we couldn't possibly write them all down. We know of three that are recorded through the Gospels. There may have been many more, we don't know, but you imagine if you were here in this audience? Stand in awe, and as they see it, it says they clearly praise God. They had no other explanation for what had happened here, but that God had done a magnificent work. They were amazed by what they'd seen. And in their amazement, they do recognize the great power of Jesus. 
They recognize his power. They can't deny his power. They just stood there and watched him put his hand on the side of the coffin, speak to this young man, and then have that young man speak back and go back to his mother. They can't deny his power. Perhaps some of them already had in their mind what happened in the sound just on the other side of the hill. That a prophet did this. So they begin to think, who is this man? Who is he? Is he a prophet? Is that what he is? They are certain that in some way or another, God has come to visit them that day. But while they recognize that this is a work of God and they praise God for it, they don't yet recognize the identity of Jesus. They don't yet realize that the one they are looking at, the one they are praising and thinking and saying this is clearly the work of God, they don't recognize that not only is it the work of God, it is actually God. That will still need to come to recognize who he truly is. A large audience is confronted by the ravages of sin and sees the instinctive tenderness of Jesus are amazed by his stunning miracle and exalt God. This is one who can raise a man from the dead, and this one who can raise this man from the dead is the same one who can raise us from the dead. He is the one who frees you from the relentless pursuit of sin and death upon you. God has visited his people. In that statement, these people are right. God has visited his people. He sent his son, Jesus. He sent his son, Jesus. And Jesus crushed sin. And he crushed death. And he rose victorious from the grave. And believing Jesus came to die for your sin... And rose again to crush the power of sin and death and give eternal life. In believing that truth, you can be saved from the tyranny of sin and death. Believer, these things are true. These things are what save us from death. So praise God. Thank God. And proclaim his power with boldness. Because he is able to bring life from death. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. For its beauty. As we watch through the word, the glories of your miraculous nature. Teach us so deeply, so personally why you came to earth. Lord, we give you praise and we thank you that by putting our faith in you and our trust in you that you have saved us from our sin. You have rescued us from a life without hope and you have given us eternal, glorious, permanent life. Life with you forever. Lord, for those perhaps here, or those who we have been sharing the gospel with, Lord, may you open their eyes to see this glorious truth. 
that they can be rescued from the life or the death that sin ravages. We thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.